0: From my home studio, welcome to Evolve, groundbreaking Jewish conversations.
1: It may seem really distant, you know, like queer erotic mysticism. I don't think it's distant at all. If you look at the kinds of religion that are ascendant, in the United States, also in Israel, also in many other countries. I mean, these are people who are having these powerful mystical spiritual experiences and then translating those directly into what I call you would think is very repressive and regressive politics.
0: I'm your host, Brian Schwartzman. Today, I'm talking with Rabbi Jay Michelson. We'll be discussing Jay's short story collection, The Secret That Is Not a Secret, which bridges the worlds of mysticism, heresy, faith, and desire. In our show notes, we'll put a link to the book and its independent publisher, uh, Ion Press. We'll also get into some of Jay's journalism since October 7th. He's tackled the moral and legal dimensions of Hamas's attack, the subsequent war, Fallout Abroad, Anti-Semitism, Debates on Campus. Um, he's done this in a, in a heap of, of pieces for The Forward, as well as Rolling Stone. In 2022, Jay published an Evolve essay titled The Allure of the Antinomian, or How Jacob Frank Seduced Me. That piece was adapted from his book of scholarship, The Heresy of Jacob Frank, from Jewish messianism to esoteric myth. And that book actually ended up winning the national Jewish book award for scholarship. If you'd like to stay up to date on the latest essays, videos and podcasts from Evolve, sign up for the Evolve newsletter. We'll put a link in our show notes and you can also find it easily at evolve.reconstructingjudaism.org. Um, We know we don't always want an extra email in our inbox, but this uh, carries resources each month that'll really make it worth it. And this Purim note will be offering an exclusive essay to anybody who has subscribed to our newsletter. So sign up today to get this exclusive content. All right, now let's get to our guest. Rabbi J. Michelson is the author of 10 books. He holds an MFA from Sarah Lawrence College, a PhD in Jewish thought from Hebrew University, and a JD from Yale, a Juris Doctorate. Jay is a journalist at Rolling Stone and CNN, a rabbi, a longtime LGBTQ activist, and a teacher of Jewish and Buddhist meditation. Um, One of the places he teaches is for the the, um, smartphone app 10% Happier, which I've used and I can say has, has helped me begin to develop uh, a meditation practice. So if, um, I recommend checking it out. A note, we recorded this conversation on January 4th. Jay Michelson, hi, and welcome back to the podcast.
1: Thanks, Brian. It's good to be back.
0: If we're on the air and get enough episodes to, to get a five-timers club, I have a sense you'll, you'll, be, you'll be the first one there. So
1: No, oh, that's um, great. Me and Paul Simon. <laughs> right, right, right. Tom Hanks too. Mm-hmm.
0: First off, congratulations on on your first book of fiction. I know it it it's not. I know from personal experience, it's not easy to find a a home for short fiction in general, a collection. And and it sounds like you you ended up in a in a really good it ended up in a really good publishing home. So so congratulations.
1: Thanks. Yeah, this would never have happened if Ayn Press didn't exist. Uh, You know, we can talk about it, but I had a kind of version of this uh, collection for some time. And, uh, you know, it took the quirky, artsy, Jewy, mystically publishing house to come to me. Uh, I pitched it to them before they even launched, but they waited for me to win some awards before they accepted (laughs) (laughs)
0: <laughs> oh and and yes and since we last spoke congratulations on the National Jewish Book Award for your for your next most recent book. Thank you.
1: I think ours was one of the first conversations I did on uh, on that one actually. So I I attribute its success to uh to our podcast.
0: I'll I'll take it. Thank
1: you. <laughs> that
0: was that was a good conversation. We're gonna talk about your, 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 your fiction writing today and, and some, of your, some of your more recent news writing. And, and I, uh, I thought back to an almost oz quote I remembered that thanks to Google, I was, I was able to look up and, and he had said when he was older that when I need to take a side, I write a newspaper article and tell my government, you should not do that, you should do this. They don't listen to me but I've been doing this for 60 years now but when I write a novel I'm not in that business. So you've you've published 9 books before before this run, I don't know, hundreds, thousands of of op-ed and other news articles. What what can you do, what can you say in fiction that you can't in poetry, scholarship, memoir, op-ed is there is there something different about fiction that you can't do with anything else
1: definitely i mean i love that quote and thank you for not telling me it before the uh until right now because I, I love just hearing it fresh uh, yeah almost I said it perfectly you know there is a in my nonfiction work and certainly in my journalism work i'm, pr- I'm primarily an opinion writer so i do exactly what i, was, so I was, <laughs> in fact it's funny <laughs> i mean i just had a, a piece published this morning uh, in my newsletter about you know the sort of liberal zionist center left, something like that. And um, so it's just fun. We, I may have said the same things that I also said 50 years ago. But that's right. You know, there's a there's a directness, there's a normativity and there's an ownership of a point of view. You know, I don't I don't write something I don't believe. And that's great. You know, that has that has its place. I do that a lot. And it's so liberating to not do that, uh, to not, as he said, to not be in that business you know, the characters in this book are grappling with a set of kind of similar issues, but each in their own weird way and dysfunctional way and sometimes functional way. You know, I think one of the things that I noticed in the revision of the book was that I don't really have, I don't think a nonfiction book on Kabbalah that I want to write. I mean, I had the academic book on on Jacob Frank, but it's not a big part of my actual contemplative practice anymore and it was in the past but I still find it endlessly fascinating and you know just totally absorbing and to so to enter into you know a dozen different worlds in which that Jewish mystical life is real for the characters who are in it and for the for the world in which the stories are placed that's super fun and it was a way for me to play with some of the just remarkably complicated in a good way symbolism and just ways of being that that way that that sort of mystical tradition uh, incubates and in in a person and that it's not i don't want to be any of those characters i don't think although some of them have some nice interesting things happen to them but i, I am endlessly fascinated by them
0: interesting and and picking up on your your last book was 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 about mysticism and it also was about heresy this book the secret that is not a secret is sort of it's it's subtitled i guess 10 heretical tales i mean you you have all you have a bunch of orthodox characters some non-orthodox characters men women gay straight what what makes these tales um what makes these tales heretical
1: i think one of the one of the subjects that I was interested in in the book is, is the pull between what we might call Shamayim and arts or heaven and earth, or some dualistic conception of spirit and body or secret and non-secret, you know, the Kabbalah, if nothing else is, is about, you know, lots of levels of reality and depths of secrets and relationships of different energies and potencies in reality. You know, those, those may all be make-believe, but there is that, um, that obsession uh, within that, and it's a, it is having lived in that way a little bit in my life, uh, and you know many years ago, it is transporting. I mean, you live in different worlds at the same time. You know the way some of those some of those conflicts get addressed or resolved in this book of fiction is certainly not normative, right? So there's often a rejection of that secret in favor of the secret that's not a secret, which might be that there is no secret. There is a, you know, there are a number of the stories are queer liberation stories. Some are, some are psychedelic in nature. Many of them end with characters committing to faith, but destroying themselves in in the process. So these are not the messages of, um, yeah, what I would call normative Kabbalah or normative Judaism. Uh, They rather play, but they play in that playground to hopefully startling results, or at least surprising ones, at least they were for me as some of them came into being, it's that, yeah, I think it's that role that that the liberation of imagination was, is so joyous, you know, especially, you know, I know we'll, we'll talk a little bit about this, my sort of journalistic work in a bit, you know, in this weird juxtaposition, which of course was not timed or intentional that I have this book there is one story in the book that touches on on political themes and kind of analogizes the political erotic and spiritual in in the lives of its characters but other than that you know it's these are stories that are not certainly not about the news and yet the book came out 2 months after the war began in Israel and Palestine and and it's just been this kind of it's worked. It's just is what it, I, you know, it's a cliche to say it is what it is. I mean, it's been, it's just been this particularly strange journey, having this celebratory moment of mystical fiction, you know, at the same time as not just that the war is going on, but that I'm actively involved in, you know, writing a lot about it and trying to help some folks who are really struggling and, and trying to shed a little bit of light. So it's like the, um, there's always i'm always pulled in multiple directions that's just a fact of my life but it has been an interestingly acute example of that in these last couple of months
0: i think you you wrote to me in 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 email that you 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 part of this discussion you wanted to address the the queer desire that's explored in, in the book and 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 there certainly is that but not i mean not not all the characters are queer in sort of the traditional sense, I'm, you know, I was thinking a lot about, uh, about, um, Yonid. need, I guess this, this works as a, as an author, cause I'm still like really feeling for, for this national religious, um, young, young teenager who, who seeks to find spirituality in the desert and, and bad things happen and, and, you know, has run, you know, Runs out of water and stuff, but 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 she wasn't queer in the in in the traditional sense. She you know just wanted to find God in the desert. So what I guess I, I was wondering what you what you meant when you talked about this book and 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 its
1: exploration of of queer desire. Sure, yeah. I mean, for me, the opposite of gay may be straight, but the opposite of queer is just normal right and so there's no one in the book that i see as kind of happily (laughs) you know going about some sort of normative emotional life and so you know even with Yonit, who's you know exploring her heterosexuality uh, as a teenage girl and exploring desire and what kind of desire she has for the different kinds of boys that are that are in her high school, does she desire the sort of cool kid? Does she desire the quiet scholar? Like what, you know, these different pulls, to me, that's already queered. And just the ways in which she struggles against the boxes into which young women are are often placed, or at least that she experiences them in in her community, you know, that you're either good girl or bad girl, for example. So you either have a puritanical uh, rejection of sexuality, and you, you know, in in, in its it, it, at least in an unmarried uh, life, or you know, you get this reputation of being the bad the bad girl, and she just that's that to me. Or you know, queerness is about seeing the misfit. For me, at least, and seeing the misfit between these boxes, whether they're about gender or sexuality or really any kind of identity, the misfit between those boxes and our realities, which never really fit in. You know, I think. I mean everybody's queer right to some extent and that's that's what I I find more interesting. Yeah I th- I did a count at one point and fewer than half it was just about half but like a little less than half of the protagonists would be identified as L or G uh, as lesbian or gay and, and you know the the way that queerness to me also mysticism itself is very queer right it's a kind of maybe it's a sublimated eros toward the divine. Which is a queer kind of love, or maybe eros is a sublimated mysticism into into the corporeal, and you know, Kabbalah itself. It, it's I have written a couple of nonfiction articles. In fact, I taught a seminar, I think, at, at RRC about uh, the, about queerness and Kabbalah, and it it like gives with one hand and takes with the other. You know, so on the one hand, here's this fascinating polytheism where God has these 10 emanations, whatever that word means, and they're gendered in different ways. And all of the gender combinations are different, and some of them have multiple genders. And like, it's this enormously queer and liberating theology. But at the end of the day, right, it comes back to the normative, heteronormative and sex negative Jewish you know, obsession uh, with, and, and, and legal strictures. So it's like on the one and and even the liberating parts, the liberating queer parts of Kabbalah are still, you know, woven together into a very gender binaristic and heteronormative context. I remember an, a part of an ex partner of mine once was being interviewed for rabbinical school and the very well known person who was interviewing him, who I won't name said, um, well, how do you, reconcile, you know, being a gay person with all of this, you're interested in Kabbalah, but the Kabbalah is, if nothing, it's always about male and female, right? So like it's, and so, and that's true. And that's a limitation, right? It's just, that's the world in which it's operating. And yet within that limitation, within that problematic frame, there's still you know, every single every person contains male, female, and other. So it might be I might have more female than male in me, and, and you might have more male than female. And that might change depending on context. So the um, you know, the great Jewish heroes are meant to be male, you know, and quote unquote and dominant. I feel like scare quoting everything I'm saying since we're only in audio. You know at relative to their followers so think about like king david for example or moses or jacob or abraham so they're meant to be the kind of the the men quote unquote relative to you know, to earthly people but they're meant to be quote again i'm not i'm not taking i'm not buying into this exactly the the woman so to speak for the divine more the vessel more the receiver and that that's really interesting. So even within, I mean, I couldn't even get those sentences out without hesitation, right? Because the system in which it's working is so problematic, but within that problematic system, there's still this really interesting queering for lack of a better word of the way that gender is normally understood. So that's what's, it's like what's alluring about Kabbalah and what's frustrating about it. So again, writing fiction, coming back to your earlier question, like I get to play in the sandbox with the, with the fun toys you know, and see where those see where those head in different directions.
0: Remind me, who's the, the the name of the character from the from the first story who gets obsessed and repulsed by her, her husband's beard? That's.
1: Actually, it's funny. Her name is Sarah because she's a Chabadnik. And yet in my brain, until we recorded the audiobook, I mean, I knew it was Sarah, but I somehow wrote in my brain, it was Sarah, but it's definitely Sarah. And when we did the audiobook, I realized, oh, wait, her name's not Sarah at all. <laughs> it was funny. Anyway, Sarah.
0: So I think I'm I'm thinking of Sarah, jumps most to mind. But this is this kind of seems true throughout the book. There's there's something going on where where the desire for for God get or or the divine is eroticized and and erotic desire is 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 becomes mystical or or somehow religious in nature. And just I don't know what is. <laughs> what is going on there?
1: That's how I experience my religiosity in real life. So that's, <laughs> I think, you know, what's what I found, so the the rough plot of that first story called The Beard, and these stories interlock, so characters appear, the teacher from The Beard shows up later in another story, a bunch of the characters reappear. Uh, this character, Sarah, who's a Balchuva, she didn't grow up religious, but became Chabad, it has a full normative now Chabad lifestyle. She loves her husband, except she can't stand his big bushy Chabad beard. Right and it she goes to all kinds of lengths to try to reconcile herself to that reality and really struggles to do so i won't do any we give away any spoilers and there for me i mean that's you know there's that push pull like no matter how she spiritualizes or symbolizes the reality in front of her there is an embod- there is an embodied reality that is inescapable that she struggles against and it's also a gendered reality right there's this is the symbol of his masculinity that she simply cannot abide and there's a whole discourse that that the that story refers to briefly analogizing uh, the facial beard to pubic hair and it sees this relationship between the beard and sexuality and that you know some of her other desires which again i, I don't want to spoil by talking about but the way that she works with some of her desires that were so kind of forbidden that i only wanted to allude to them in the story she really does also love god she loves her life as a chabad as a chabad Balchuva. and i think one of the you know there's certainly a trend or a mini trend of ex orthodox Nonfiction and fiction that's become pretty popular lately, and and a lot of it's beautiful. I actually just read uh, Jericho Vincent's memoir of leaving a uh, yeshivish charedi household, and Abby Stein, who's who grew up as a, grew up as a Hasidic young man and 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 is transgender, and she wrote this incredible memoir of growing up trans, not knowing that trans was a thing, obviously, in that in that insular Hasidic community. So there are these wonderful stories about, but I, I also wanted not just the leaving, but the, the wanting to stay. And those two that I mentioned, Jericho and Abby's books, both have that a little bit, Abby's more than Jericho's, you know, but there's, I, I, I'm interested both in why, sure, and why people leave. You can see that, but a lot of people don't leave. And why don't they? And it's not only coercive control and you know abusive situations. It's also this this yearning that I remember experiencing, you know, when I considered living that kind of a life. Luckily for me, I think luckily, uh, I didn't do that. But it, you know, there wouldn't have been much of a space for me as as a queer man in that space. But but people do find ways to reconcile themselves to it because of that devotion, which itself I think is a kind of sublimated eros or related to eros and um i also you know there's another mini trendlet are and which i am very guilty of participating in or like the cult specials on you know netflix or you know or max or whatever where you know there is i'm you know i did write that book on jacob frank so i'm just totally endlessly captivated by these kind of marginal religious messianic era erotic movements uh frankism was kind of a cult if we could speak anachronistically uh, in the 18th century but um i constantly struggle with these pop culture versions because they don't i don't think they ever really can convey what's so attractive about these cults right it's just easy to say oh well mind control or charisma or something like that but i know people who've been in these kind of movements and new religious movements and they They're pulled to it the same way that folks who go to a good Jewish congregation or synagogue or davening or study session are just in a more extreme way. And that Eros is, I think, just really interesting. And I would even say, since I know, you know, it's also a pretty important force in politics, right? It may seem really distant, You know, like queer erotic mysticism, I don't think it's distant at all. If you look at the kinds of religion that are ascendant in the United States, also in Israel, also in many other countries, they are not like rationalist, bland Protestantism or mainstream big temple Judaism, right? They are precisely the ones that are more charismatic, that have more. I mean, if you go to a good charismatic Pentecostal or evangelical church service, and you have some familiarity, let's say, with a good, you know, with a, with a Hasidic, you know, service or, you know, davening, something like that, it will look very similar. I mean, these are people who are having these powerful mystical spiritual experiences and then translating those directly into what I would think, what I call, you would think, is very repressive and regressive politics. So the way, and that that operates in the lives of a couple of the um, the characters as well, There there is... I don't want to call it a danger even. It's just like that is part of what it is to have this profound religiosity is like it's easy for progressive reconstructionists to be like, yeah, we all. We should all do contemplative practice and then like we'll love each other more. Well, a lot of people do pretty intensive spiritual practice and and have stronger boundaries between us and them and stronger in-group affiliation and stronger ties to traditional religious strictures. And again, like I wouldn't want to like put that out in a nonfiction like, hey, try this and become a fundamentalist. but as a writer, and I do find it that is where I find it really fascinating and I, I love those stories. so I tried to tell 10 of them. <laughs> I just
0: read somewhere that that the, the most recent biographer said George Harrison associates said he became much harder to deal with after he oh, dived really? into <laughs> into transcendental meditation. so it, I guess
1: well, I think it was fine on the TM time. I think it was when he got into, Chris, you know, he was, he was into ISKCON, the Krishna, uh, Western Krishna movement. And I don't, wouldn't want to call that a cult or something, but it certainly had, was a strongly tied religious movement with a charismatic leader at the top. And had a and you know, we see it we, but we see it everywhere, right? so whether it's traditional right wing religion, look at look at what's happening in Israel right now, where religiously motivated motivated extremists are dictating right. Israeli policy. And that's I think an interesting from a writer perspective, interesting as a, you know, political commentator may be tragic, an interesting consequence of. You know this 21st century in which technology and globalization and other gigantic forces have really changed the way we interact with one another, it has not meant the end of religion. Uh, on the contrary, it's meant a kind of extremization, that's, that's not a very scholarly sounding word, of the kinds of religiosity that seem to be thriving are precisely those which have the most spiritual juiciness in them. And that is also Eros. And you,
0: you you alluded to this about the circumstances of, of you know your book coming out post-October seventh. You've been working and thinking about this for, for years, and yet that's the context in which it, it comes out into the world. And it doesn't, you know, it's it's a very Jewish book with very Jewish characters who are mostly unhappy in some way you're not gonna come away from this feeling like everything is all better and and it and it also doesn't
1: i did <laughs> you did well you did Well, there's redemption it's funny yeah go ahead i did no sort of no i
0: i guess just just and it also doesn't it doesn't address the jews collectively this is this is really you know does what fiction does about ind- individual characters i i i guess um I'm, I'm formulating a question on the fly, so what, why don't you say what you were going to say about about <laughs> redem- redemption? Well, yeah, so, that, that seemed like it was going somewhere.
1: <laughs> I, I yeah, I would first I would say I found the work on this, and hopefully readers will find reading it to be a good vacation. <laughs> it's like a reminder, you know. I think certainly in October, November, you know, there was there is there is just an inescapable reality of the the predominance of let's call it the peoplehood aspects of Jewishness. You know, our people were attacked, right, and then our people attacked back in ways that were that really divided a lot of us and that were painful. And this is all Jewish nation stuff, right? Religion was maybe in the background, but the kinds of Jewish stuff that I love to do, which are in the book, this dovetails to what you're saying. You know, the 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 nature parts and the pagan parts and the spiritual parts and the psychedelic parts those all took a back seat, right? In our consciousness, at least it did in mine and in literally everyone, every Jewish person I know, because there was a trauma that took place and, and we're nowhere near done processing it. And so for me, when I had to turn, we did have some changes. We had a big launch party that was gonna happen in November, which we didn't do, but we are gonna try to do do one in a couple of them in February. You know, this was a this was like a reminder that, oh, right, 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 I'm not like denying the the peoplehood sides the Amisraelchai side of Jewish of my Jewishness, but that's not where most of my joy is, my Jewish joy. And I'm fine if that is where some people's Jewish joy, primary Jewish hmm. joy, resides. But it, it's almost never been that for me. The primary Jewish joy, I think, is in the sort of quirky, artistic, mystical creativity of whether it's Jewish spirituality, Jewish art, literature et cetera. Like it's the, it's those funky, formerly marginal Judaism's, but I'm not sure how marginal anymore. Certainly again, if we think in a, like in a kind of reconstructionist context, those margins have, you know, thankfully the lunatics have taken over the asylum. Although I'm not sure we're allowed to say that anymore, but whatever the metaphor is, right? Like the, what used to be on the margins, I think is now more toward the center. That's where like the Jewish joy was. So yeah, it was almost like, it wasn't quite a vacation from the news, but it was a reminder that helped me kind of balance a little bit. Um, like, what is this Jewish thing that I slash we are involved in? But yeah, thankfully it didn't, you know, the book is not a political book. But I, I did want to just briefly, I don't want to too much change topics. There is, I, in the earliest versions of this book, I mean, the, these stories date back 20 years. And in some of the initial versions, there was a lot less redemption. Uh, than there is now. Uh, there are a couple of stories where the characters don't find redemption. I don't think, and, but and remain trapped or choose to remain trapped, or they offer or they're given a glimpse of what redemption or liberation might look like. But you, you know, we're not sure that that's going to be more than a glimpse. And that that shifted. And I think when I first wrote these, and the, I've totally rewrote it. About it's funny. It was like in two thousand three. 2013, 2023, were like the three times where this was really the focus of my work, and I rewrote it in 2013 for a um, my MFA thesis at Sarah Lawrence. And there too, it was still, I didn't there. It wasn't about so much of the redemption that I think is in there, but in some of the stories, I'm thinking like the, the transfiguration, for example, or the final story, which is set in the 19th century. There are. There, there are pathways to wholeness, healing, enlightenment. They're just not the pathways that are set down in the tradition. And that goes back to that notion of heresy, that you know the heretic is one who chooses uh, etymologically, who chooses their own path and finds their own path or is shown a different path. And that can often be pretty traumatic in its own way. But I found it to be liberatory, and I was was interested in telling those stories here.
0: Have you been moved by this conversation? Found a new perspective on the Evolve website? Deepen your Jewish practice with a resource from ritualwell.org. Has your life been impacted by a Reconstructionist rabbi or community? If the answer is yes to any of these, consider making a gift to Reconstructing Judaism. We bring you this podcast and so much more. We partner with people and communities to envision the kind of Jewish spaces we all want to be part of. And then we set about to build them together. There's a donate link in our show notes. And you can also give at the Evolve homepage. Find it and click support us. Thanks for considering. And now back to our interview. I I could talk about literature. All, all day and, and let's and, just do and, that. <laughs> but you know, I I I do. Um, I feel incumbent upon me to ask. Um, since you know, transitioning a little since since October seventh, you've written. I don't know. I counted ten. There maybe there may be more. Maybe I overcounted pieces for the forward and Rolling Stone. Maybe others. Really delving into some of the most thorniest topics of, of, of ethical, moral, related, related to the war, Israel's response related to what's, what's happening in our own political culture. You've addressed uh, Jewish law and war, the hostage deal, the morality of attacking a hospital. Um, you've written a couple pieces about, about anti-Semitism on campus and, and the college you know, the college president's I guess I was wondering what, since especially since you said it, it, it had been quite some time since you devoted your your energy to writing about about um, about Israel, the Palestinians. What what role did you see yourself fulfilling? Was there an animating principle? Was there just something that made you get up? Was it the fact that you've got all these different backgrounds—rabbinic, legal, journalistic? Like, I guess, I guess that that that's. Um, I'll stop there.
1: Yeah. It was kind of that actually. Yeah. It, it, the, you know, I think when, when there's a crisis of this magnitude, you know, it's natural for us to ask ourselves, well, what can I do? Right. And we're all powerless to some degree to really impact, the, you know, to really help the people who most need helping the people who are being bombed or the people who are grieving horrible losses from a few months ago, from three months ago. and you know, we can help in some ways. And so, but we, and so when we think, well, how can I help? It was that kind of confluence, right? So, you know, I can kibitz about defense strategy and military strategy, but I'm not an expert in that. But where I have spent, you know, a few decades at this point, writing is at that kind of intersection of ethics and politics or spirituality and politics. You know, so the first things that I wrote were just trying to reflect, embody, convey, honor, and maybe comfort some of the shock and grief and pain and sadness that we all felt, that we, I think almost everyone in the Jewish or Jewish adjacent community felt. For me, that was already accompanied by a dread of the death that was to come because obviously we knew that there would be a terrible response and that some response was called for and we we knew that what that would bring and that has now unfolded. But in that initial period, it was just like, let's not like, let's not pass over, you know, we should, we need a grieving process, which we're not going to be able to have, because soon we're going to shift into this wartime. And then we did. And yeah, for me, it's like where, where there can be something that I can offer that, you know, someone that Thomas Friedman can't offer, (laughs) you know, it's going to be at that intersection. And so some of the pieces I've done, you know, that I've, Pushed back on the use of the word genocide to describe the war from a sort of very legal point of view. So that's really me. I mean, that was almost me writing like a law article. I I did that at the Daily Beast for eight years. I was the Supreme Court columnist, just writing straight legal analysis, basically. And this felt a little bit like that. So sometimes it's that, but sometimes it's more the intersection today, uh, as we're recording today. Of course, it'll be in the past when when this is out, but you know, I just published a piece on kind of the liberal Zionists kind of coming into their own in a after a period of not really having a political home. And so it's it's rare that the the main news story is one where I've just done a lot of work in the past. And I was very active in writing and and in in some activism around this many years ago. I really kind of burned out. And it is true even now. It's funny, you know, I think there's a sense that our public discourse now is like the worst it's ever been. I would say the hate mail I get now is about the same as the hate mail I got 15, 20 years ago. You know, I was also, I mean, I was banned from college campuses just for being a J Street supporter, let alone a you know, like BDS supporter or something like that. I would like even that was considered trafe. So it's actually more eerily familiar than new. I mean, the technology is new, in terms of you know it's easier for people to send this, these kinds of messages. And it is interesting that the pieces that have provoked the most response are not even the ones directly about the war, but about these ancillary issues like the scandal around the college presidents and their their awful, badly handled testimony in front of Congress, and you know, all, and the stuff around anti-Semitism on campus. It's like that actually. In terms of what gets people who disagree seemingly the most angry, uh, it's actually that stuff. And but that's where hopefully there's an intersection between the different kinds of work that I do. Wow! And look, I you know the my the Substack newsletter I started in September, not knowing there was about to be a war, and it, and it's it's called both and, and the note the idea is that intersection that both and in many ways even this liberal Zionist thing is a both and kind of situation, like both supporting the concept of the Jewish state and opposing some of its actions and so forth. But it just that was the intention was to kind of at this point in my career, figuring out, I'm not going to conquer the world journalistically. So it's like just figuring out what a J. Michelson piece might be. There's that the overtold story. It's a is it a Hasidic or Talmudic where it's like, you know, zusia goes to heaven and he's asked, how come you weren't more zusia So that's like the that's sort of the animating principle.
0: As we're as we're talking today, the 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 stepping down of Claudine Gay, the the president of Harvard, is still among the top news stories. I, I imagine it won't be by the time um, this episode is is released. Um but but back in back in the fall, before even the President of Penn had stepped down, you took, I think, which was like a counter, a counterintuitive or or or, or less than less than universally embraced stand in in the Jewish press of sort of defending, if not the president's handling of 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 uh, of, of the the situation, sort of the the, the general principle of of of. Depends on the context, and and you know, I was really struck by what you wrote when you said, "When we react emotionally instead of intelligently, we make mistakes." So, I, I guess, um, you know, now now that we've seen the president of Harvard step down, and and there's all kinds of recriminations on 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 multiple sides, what you know, what you're what you're taking away from from events, and 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 where you see that story going.
1: Yeah, I, I mean that is just what we were talking about on the last question, right? Where that where I, I see at least an intersection between something about our inner lives and our outer lives. You know, and it it is interesting in the in my most recent forward piece, I think was it yesterday, the day before yesterday, about this particular issue, you know, I I took a look at some at the statement by uh, Bill Ackman, who's a very wealthy uh Jewish donor to Harvard, and <clears throat> it was just so you know, had he made that statement to me, I also just coincidentally, I just finished teaching a six-day meditation retreat. Had had he been on that retreat <laughs> and come out with that statement in an interview with me, you know, the invitation would be like, well, wow, how are you feeling right now? You know, what, what's the feeling tone around these? Because like, it was so angry and saying things which are just silly, you know, from a, from an analytical point of view, understandable from a from an emotional point of view, like I can empathize with the rage and with the grief and the frustration, but, you know, just, it's like, here's somebody who's been very successful perhaps in part because of, you know, acting on, on emotion, right. Which can obviously be an asset, certainly in in certain kinds of business, but, you know, just like saying some stuff, which really is hard to support. And this is like a very powerful person who did help co-engineer this campaign that took down the president of Harvard. So it's, You know, and it's seeing the ways in which the very real pain that so many American Jews are in, seeing the ways in which that pain gets channeled or used or weaponized, you know, that's been pretty sobering, and I don't think that's going away. But again, that's always been true. You know, there's always been, a lot of American Jews are tied to Israel because we learned about it when we were three years old, or because we had parents or grandparents who are Holocaust survivors, or we have a sense of our own fragility and precarity, or we have you know, or we had positive experiences in Israel. I mean, I remember when I went as a teenager, you know, it was like, I didn't even realize it was fun. It's just, this. you know, it it was a bit of a coming out experience. Like, I didn't realize how repressed I had been Jewishly, like, you know, closeting various parts of Jewishness. But now, you know, I was 16, and I could go to McDonald's and, you know, eat burgers or whatever. And, you know, that's pretty trivial in a way, but in a way, it's not, right? These were like these big... Openings, you know, even the McDonald's thing, although back then it was only Burger King, you know, there and like even that. You know, and but then much more than that, right? There's also it's jokingly called sexual Zionism, where these teen tours go to Israel and all the kids have these great experiences and associate them with Israel. But also, you know, you go and you're a kid or a young adult or even just an adult. And, you know, you see the Kotel for the first time or something like that, or you visit some biblical site. These are powerful, spiritual, emotional experiences. And then just like, you know, we're talking about before, you know, that gets linked to to politics and linked it sounds too conscious. It just is politics. It just becomes politics. It animates why we care about a certain way, why we take sides. Some of it, of course, is direct relations. I have relatives in the army right now. So obviously it's it's that's a degree of direct connection that's just not as much as I want to empathize with the with with innocent Palestinians, that I don't have that just family connection that's that's there in that sense. But so much of it is also, I think, this profound emotional spiritual connection that people have with this thing called Jewishness or that place called Israel. And you just see it in real time how it leads to. I mean, I just did a a kind of, I don't know, center right something podcast yesterday uh, with a, a host who's Jewish. And it like immediately went the emotional level went up to like 11. And he just could not. Uh, yeah i mean it it was not a civil conversation in a lot of ways yikes I guess
0: we'll, like just sticking with the campus for for a minute and i'll move on i mean i mean i guess like a main criticism we've heard and i think it's not just from the right is that is that somehow it like the conversation feels different around around jews that that when we're talking about Jews, it's it's you know the First Amendment and free speech comes up, and 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 it seems like with with other groups, maybe you know protecting the the sense of safety was 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 the paramount principle. Is there is there anything is there anything to that? I guess.
1: Well, yeah. I mean, you were you phrased that a lot more carefully than my host yesterday did. <laughs> you know, just with your use of the word "seems." So first, you know, I'm also very familiar with pro-Palestine activists on college campuses who are having a very rough time of it as well. Sure, sure. So I don't think it's nearly as one-sided as a lot of the Jewish perception uh, is. And, you know, look, I I think also it gets in the weeds very quickly. Clearly, there's been an increase in anti-Semitism in many different contexts, not just university campuses, but everywhere. There's just news yesterday. It was like a deli that was set on fire in uh, Toronto, I think. Yeah, yeah. So it's real. It's not not real. So that is real. You know. It, then I think there's a tendency to like turn to who we usually want to blame for stuff, and then that's happened a lot. So there's already this kind of anti woke, you know, sentiment in the in the right and the center also, and. Oh well and so you know again yesterday not to reference that too much but it was a lot about that double standard like oh well you say anything that like offends a person of color and you're in trouble but now you can you know support genocide none of the, none of those the none of the words in that s- sentence are true <laughs> right you know a lot of the examples of kind of cancellation are people who are either faculty members or who are invited to speak and who are being deplatformed not canceled And student speech actually has been more free. I'm sure there are a lot of, you know, we could talk about microaggressions and things like that, but that's not what, that doesn't lead to people being fired from their prestigious positions. Obviously within the Harvard case, right, the plagiarism stuff is also real. And so it's complicated, but still the campaign that was, went against her was not about plagiarism. It was about Israel and Jewish stuff. So Yeah, I mean, it's just a tangled situation where it's neither one nor the other. It's neither all fantasy nor is it all reality. You know, there is this perception. And there's also a kind of what I've seen directly is a kind of learning of what we're supposed to feel like when we're being hurt. And so we can weaponize our victim status. And like we learn that from culture, not from reality. So, like, that's coming i mean culture is real but we learn that because we have this image of like oh here's what I, here's how i'm supposed to respond if i'm feeling unsafe as a minority i'm supposed to do this and have this feeling and sometimes that creates feelings you know that that's so that set of cultural con- culturally constructed victimhood and so i'm not saying it's not real it is real and i think it is also true that in some some circles in the left, Jewishness is definitely not regarded as in any way like a, a minority status, which is ridiculous. And we've seen it. that's really painful, you know where Jew, you know the, the, the relationship of Jews and whiteness is very complex, right? We have a kind of conditional whiteness where like sometimes we're white and then but if we're at a you know white supremacist you know, rally, we're suddenly not white. But here, there's been a sort of whitening of Israelis, which is, of course, preposterous, but also of of Jews. and But that also has been going on for a while. You know, that was years ago that I remember some of the first, like, not many years ago, but I remember in early BLM, so let's say like 2020, there were like ways to, you know, there were from coming within the Jewish left. Sort of reaching out to be like, here's how we can support each other. Here's how we haven't stood up to support people, communities of color. And here's what we need to do better. And also, let's also not lapse into like anti-Semitism or anti-se- anti-Semitic uh, rhetoric. And here are some of the things to think about and know about. Here's the distinction between justified legitimate criticism of Israel and anti-Semitism. So that's also not just the, the last few months. It's just maybe reached a new level of intensity.
0: Something, something you said there really, uh, and, and I'm not even sure what really just brought back to mind to me, like, like you're like, oh, this is how we're supposed to feel. This is how we're supposed to react. It's, it's so hard to see even a sliver of the world, something close to how it actually is, as opposed to through distorted perception. And, and my sense is, is, is maybe that's. That's that's part of what you're trying to do with these with these uh, op eds is, is 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 do your best to show the situation as it actually is, you know, in 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 all its complexity. I mean, I think I I think you are doing a service with with um with the op ed writing you're doing. So,
1: thank you. I appreciate that. Yeah, it's you know, it's funny. Even the word complicated is complicated now. Yeah. <laughs> Right, I mean, I'm I'm always for complexification, but and and yet the word complicated is often used by sort of pro-Israel apologists. I would say, to like get away from like a brute reality of a particular situation. So like you know something something horrible happens, a bomb is dropped on a school or something, and you'll get a response on the pro-Israel side was like, well, it's complicated. (laughs) That it is true, it is complicated, and also, you know, the the fact that something is complicated doesn't take away the, the, the horror of a specific situation, even if the sort of causes that led to that are complicated. And even if there was military intelligence, and even if that school was being used as human shields by Hamas, and even right, that may all be true. It actually is complicated, but maybe complicated is the latest word I should write a piece on along with ceasefire Mm -hmm. and genocide and and so many others, like complicated is complicated. Like we also do want to retain. I'm still for complicated, you know, that's just where it is. And I don't I, I, I've I, never felt even I'm trying to think of an example where I think it's not complicated. You know, so I'm like going to Trump or MAGA or the movement or something like that. But even that's complicated. You know, There, there is a lot of reality under some of that disenfranchisement. It's not just white resentment and white loss of privilege. It's also some pretty big macroeconomic trends. It's also, you know, a mental health crisis that's gone unaddressed, and the opioid crisis. It's it's it is complicated, and so, yeah, I would say I think I said earlier in the November October November period. Anyone who has the answer, that's the person not to believe.
0: You you are a a, a teacher and practitioner of meditation. You you've written about it. Has has uh, meditation helped you get through this period? personally, or has it helped you see things with more clarity?
1: Yeah. I mean, I think what's worked and what hasn't, you know, I've definitely, I sort of adjusted some of my meditation practice to this, this very difficult period. You know, I had a, I had a pretty rough, it was, uh, and I think part of it was just the way I w- wanted to allow the grief process to unfold. You know, I really just went to hell the second week of October and and uh, did a lot of bad things like doom scrolling and stuff like that, kind of consciously that it just felt like, you know, the wisdom of Shiva, I think the Jewish Shiva practice is just that we need time after a loss to just go to pieces, you know? And, uh, there's a, a Buddhist book going to pieces without falling apart, like to really allow those those very painful emotions to happen, and at the same time, it it definitely I, I then at some point had to stop doing that. You know, I'm a dad and I, I got a family. I have to show up and do stuff, and and so it was it it was a struggle. Meditation was definitely a valuable ally. I think in many ways, it's definitely not a cure. Although it's not like and. You know, the, the great misconception about meditation in general, I think, is like it it's it's just about changing how you feel. So you're feeling sad or anxious and no, you can relax and be chill. I mean, that meditation can be used sometimes for that. But, you know, the real value is in seeing what we're feeling more clearly, uh, even when it's really painful. Partly, look, I mean, it goes back to uh, what we were saying before. If you can see how angry I was just doing an email exchange, one of the hate mail pieces I got to Claudine Gay that piece came from a a columnist uh, who also sits on the board of the U S Holocaust museum. So I don't answer trolls, but if it's a, you know, somebody, you know, who's, who's guy in the field, you know, I'll reply. And it's funny. The first email he sent was like a pretty normal, like I'm ruining my own piece and I have some questions and I could tell he, the questions were hostile, but then I responded in a not hostile way, but then his second email was just all just vituperation basically. and you know, it doesn't really matter. He's not tanking a relationship with me because we don't have a relationship. But I definitely was seeing how with meditation eyes on, I was seeing how the pain of October and November were bleeding into other parts of my life, into my work life and into, into my family life. And um, so ju- that's where the real wisdom shows up, not in changing necessarily how you're feeling, but in seeing how you're feeling.
0: Yeah, I don't know if it was. I remember telling my kids sometime in 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 mid October, "Hey, if I if I snap at you, Daddy's pretty upset about something." And I don't no. know if that did anything, but but I felt like I had to I had to at least say that. So because it was it was rough, and yet you do you know if you have responsibilities, you have to you have to fulfill them. Yep.
1: Yeah. I mean, you know, this is just, it reminds me a little bit of COVID, right? Especially if you think in Israel, you know, where those responsibilities include, you know, like people who are having to serve in the military and then people are having to fill in for people who are serving in the military. And I just think of my friends and relatives there, you know, it's just, there is no time for the unfurling of these emotions, right? At least not as much. There's just not as much of that because it's so live right? And it's still happening. And obviously, the people in Gaza as well, even more so, right? They're trying to survive, let alone just get on with life. They're just trying to live. And, you know, this, this is the life in the poly crisis, right? Where we get over one crisis, and then there's the other one, and then there's the other one. And, you know, we got over COVID. And now it's then it's like climate change and the horrible summer. And then we got through that. And, you know, and then there's this war. And now we're into the 2024 election. And, I don't know. It's a great time to be alive in a lot of ways. (laughs) Our life expectancy is longer than ever before. You know, there's a smaller percentage of people in the world who are in poverty now than ever before in human history. And you know, science is great. And also, this period of polycrisis is um, also—it's definitely unprecedented for those of us who are, let's say, under 70 years of age. Yeah,
0: I mean, other than the fact that we're gonna celebrate about mitzvah and our our family this year, I I I can't remember feeling less
1: excited about a new year. You know, <laughs> like, like you know, I was like, yeah. what's gonna happen yeah. this year? No, yeah. it's just like it's a problem with like the way these elections. Like, it's like I think also you know we've pretty much known what this election, American election, was gonna look like. We've known about it for a while now. So, but we've just dreaded it. And like now it's freaking here, right? And there is There is like some optimism that if Trump gets convicted in any of these trials, it, it will depress his poll numbers very significantly. That's what the polling suggests. But like, so I don't want to say that nothing will save us, but, <laughs> you know, it's still, there's just a lot of dread. And and look, there's also dread, you know, mindful of, of what I see to be our audience. Yeah, you know, there's also for folks who are more progressive, it's, it's really dispiriting that, you know, for yet another year, it's kind of like a candidate that a lot of progressives are not feeling great about versus, you know, the threat of, you know, fascism. So like, you know, they hopefully we'll, you know, we'll do the right thing. And, but it's just like, that's not how you want to feel about an election. Like, okay, all right, I'll, Fine, I'll save the country from fascism. You know, it would be nice to have a little bit more optimism than that, but right. <laughs> that's just not that's not in the on the menu. I mean, I was thinking about the ongoing
0: war and and the election, but yeah, yes. Oh, I, I was mostly I would... on the election. Well, the <laughs> war is so twenty twenty three. Still,
1: <laughs> no, I'm I, I joking, think. Um,
0: I think I wanted to come back maybe to where we see if this helps us circle because there have definitely been times since. Sort of the invention of, of uh, modern contemporary literature, where where Jewish writers have been at at sort of the center of of, of the Jewish conversation. I mean, I mean, particularly the early early twentieth the early twentieth century. But I think even you know you could say that the the fifties and sixties when everybody everybody was discussing. Philip Roth and Saul Bellow and Bernard Malamud maybe even to like the dawn of the the you know the, the our current century do do you, do you see now like with all these role for for fiction and r- literature to play in all these sort of bigger discussions we're we're having about what happens to Israel what happens to the Jewish people all that kind of stuff or or is it at this point do you see the role more as as a vacation from all all that or a focus on the individual you know
1: yeah i mean i'd love to i'd love to answer that you know yes we're entering back reentering the age of the jewish public intellectual but and and that means me but i, I don't <laughs> i don't know that that's the i don't think that's that's the case you know i think for pretty good reasons you know a lot of the sort of more public literary intellectuals who are in the mainstream, not the Jewish space, but, you know, in the mainstream conversation are folks, you know, the kinds of voices that haven't been in that, you know, that, that conversation for the last couple hundred years, you know, whether it's voices of color whether it's, right. you know, immigrant voices. And, I, and this is a larger trend and, you know, it's overdue and I don't. I can kvetch about my own timing in relation to that, but I don't know that it's, I don't know that Jewish writers have that centrality to literary culture, let alone to kind of intellectual culture that, that a couple of generations ago uh, we might have. And I can't, I don't, I don't, you know, that's not necessarily a bad thing um, because of the the voices that are being lifted up or lifting themselves up. So And I don't, you know, it's just, it's a sort of also a sub it's a larger question of like, what are even the kinds of voices, the kinds of non-political, narrowly political voices that are being lifted up and everything could change, you know, but you know, if it's like the, the main TikTok influencers and things like that, I mean, that's, that's definitely not, that's not my lane either. I thought about it for a little while, but, uh, that's, that's not really my lane either. And, um, yeah, I don't know. I, I I think I I part of me yearns for that sort of sense in which what I might what you might call I guess we could just call it elite literary and artistic culture had a certain degree of public prominence that it might not have now. But the reality is, I think that my own work would probably be marginal there anyway. It would be other Jewish writers who who get it on that stage, not to like be self deprecating, but just to you know kind of assess the landscape. And yet, you know, we're in, we're just, this is, this is the age we're in. I think my own Jewish literary output, I'm very aware, one of the founders of Iron Press called it Operation Bifurcation, uh, called my life that, you know, where there's some public work that's hopefully public facing. But, you know, part of the joy of doing this book was like, this is definitely the book. I, it definitely feels like a book that only I could write. Right. And I don't think it's arrogant to say that it's just it's a pretty quirky book that only I could <laughs> write and that that won't have that big of an audience. Right. For that reason, probably. And so but that feels great. Right. That just feels really good. It feels like, you know, I've had I have had these stories floating around in my brain and laptop for a long time in different forms and different iterations and, and to have it out just feels really good. And also, you know, it's funny, like I'm happy to talk like CNN here on this podcast, but I'm not so happy to talk about my book on CNN. You know, it's just like it it deals with parts of the human experience that are vital to me, but that don't fit well in what I would call a sort of mainstream conversation. And that's okay. That's, you know, that feels exciting. I don't necessarily want mainstream embrace of, you know. Queer spiritual scenes in the mikvah and a klezmer stage, and so on.
0: Right. Well, congratulations again on on, on the book, and you know for for all your work in, in in the public sphere, and and um, I'm I'm sure you've got uh, something cooking for what's next, and and we'll
1: be talking in the future. <laughs>
0: <laughs>
1: that that sentence fills me with a little anxiety. <laughs> oh, sorry. There's <laughs> that mindfulness thing What's next? I don't know. I have a couple of next book projects. That's what that's the that's the subtext for that. And uh it's like which kind of which kind of book do I want to do next? So anyway, I own that anxiety, not you. <laughs> thanks for thanks for coming back. It
0: was good good to talk to you again.
1: Really fun, Brian. Thank you.
0: Thanks so much to Jay michaelson Reminder, his new book is The Secret That Is Not a Secret, Ten Heretical Tales. And it's available from major booksellers and it's publisher Ion Press. We'll be back next month with an all-new episode. Evolve! Groundbreaking Jewish Conversations is executive produced by Rabbi Jacob Staub and edited by Sam Wachs. Our theme song, Ilufinu, is by Rabbi Miriam Margols. This show is a production of Reconstructing Judaism. I'm your host, Brian Schwartzman, and I will see you next time.